You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to another exciting week here at The Conservative Conscience, powered by Conservative Review on Westwood One Podcast Network. It is Monday, October 22nd. Wow. Just two more weeks until the election. In fact, people are already voting because we don't have election day. We have election month in this banana republic. But that's a different story altogether. By the way, I have an article, an interesting article I wrote last season – uh, last time we had elections, I guess it was two years ago, on how early voting is unconstitutional and unfair. So you could check out that article. Um, pretty pretty wild stuff if you look at our history and, and understand the election clause. It really is unconstitutional to leave open an election for a full month, but that's what we have here. But anyway, this is going to be an exciting week. It's already you know early on Monday, but we have so much to talk about because here, unlike other shows, we don't wait for the media to create a meme and then respond to it. We have our own values, our own affirmative beliefs to pursue every day, and there's a lot of them. There's a lot of opportunities. There's there's um you know as, as we stand here two weeks before this election. Trump in particular and other Republicans that want to stand for conservatism have a tremendous opportunity to lead on a number of issues, a number of teachable moments, first and foremost with this caravan invasion force now 10,000 strong uh, carrying flags of their countries of origin that they're supposedly fleeing uh, to request asylum from. But obviously, as we know, it is an invasion force. Um, Trump has a tremendous opportunity to lead on this issue, tremendous opportunity to use this to shed light on the broader stolen sovereignty. And he's doing good on a lot of things, but the administration also, as always, there's a lot of problematic things where we're continuing liberal policies. And that's really the theme for today. We're going to discuss a lot of loose loose ideas, loose issues, uh, but tie broadly into the theme as we usually do. We have a theme of the day. That we need a movement to call balls and strikes on behalf of conservatives, on behalf of the anti-swamp movement. We need a, a movement, not just this show. You know, I wish I were put out of business, and I wish I had tremendous competition doing what I do, but there isn't. P- calling the balls and strikes on behalf of what we believe in, because if we don't do it, we are our best and only advocates. You know, it's funny. A lot of people. Every other article I write, one is, um, you know, more congratulating Trump for doing something good. Man, you're in the back pocket of Trump. The next article, I really take a sledgehammer to him for, uh, you know, pushing ethanol and going back on on his promise of of repealing Obamacare, things like that. And like, well, you're always attacking Trump. And meanwhile, anyone who gets our our, our branding here understands that we are actually not for anti or defined by anyone else. We are defined affirmatively by our, our own forward-looking positive views. And, you know, this is really what we need from a conservative movement. A friend of mine who works in immigration policy told me over the weekend that our article from last week, a very long article but detailed on how Trump has the unilater- unilateral – Ah, unilateral authority as an executive to stop this border invasion and not just the public caravan that everyone's focused on, but the tens of thousands of others you're seeing quietly slip in, surrender themselves to border agents and demand asylum when they're not asylees. He could turn that away in a second. He could ensure that they don't even get on our soil in the first place. And I heard that this was read by the highest levels of CBP. Custom and border protection. Um, you know, what's the point of this? Now, I could follow up with a bunch of articles praising Trump and a bunch of things to curry favor with the president. Because it could be he himself, based on some of what he's saying, I think he himself might have read this article. But no, I'm going to go and criticize him when I think he's giving into the swamp. 
And for those of you that are very protective of Trump and any criticism of him, what I want you to understand is that this administration has a lot of disparate factions. And often Trump has the right intuition. In other words, even where he's not doing what he should do, he often wants to do the right thing, but he gives in to the swamp. So often you'll have a debate, a very heated debate between different factions in the White House, different branches of the executive branch, you know, DOJ versus DHS, which is happening a lot on immigration issues. And by us as conservatives, not just me, but if all the top lineup on Fox's primetime uh, you know, lineup there, Tucker and, and Laura Ingram and, and Sean Hannity, and certainly Fox and Friends in the Morning, where Trump gets most of his information from, if they would say, hey, Mr. President, no, no, get off of this. Don't listen to the swamp on asylum. Um, you're actually giving the upper hand. You're giving air cover to our allies in the administration. So far from attacking MAGA and the Trump agenda, you're actually preserving it. So this is what's so counterintuitive about those who are upset when I when I criticize the administration because the administration doesn't speak with one one voice. I mean, a lot of the hardcore Trump defenders themselves always talk about the so-called deep state. Well, do you want to combat it or not? Because, you know, they're fighting to get their policies enacted. We need to strengthen the hands of our allies in the administration to fight that deep state. And the way to do that is by conservatives focusing on the leverage that we have and giving the upper hand to our allies in the administration. It's funny, over the weekend I was talking to uh, Joseph Humeyer. If you, some of you might have remembered him. I had him on twice a couple months ago, and I really should have him on again. Uh, just expert on Latin American affairs from a immigration standpoint, from a diplomatic standpoint, military standpoint, Hezbollah, Iran, Russia, China, what they're doing there. He knows, uh, you know, his his parents were from Bolivia, and he speaks all the languages. He he knows the culture and political system of each each government there. And he was kind of, you know, every time I talk to him, it's just a full briefing, and I have to take notes. And he was going through, you know, like Brazil. Well, the army is a problem, but the navy is good. Okay, the coast guard you could trust, you know. And and he has it down. And and I was saying, wow, that you know, it's it's funny how you just have literally administrations that are at war with each other. And then as I was saying that, he he kind of laughed, and we both kind of laughed, like, oh, well, it's not too different from the American government. I mean, even the American government, which is a first world country, um has disparate factions where you, you always have the CIA and, and the State Department pushing for the Muslim Brotherhood, but you know others at uh, DOJ and DOD sometimes will be pushing back. And it was always like that, so certainly you could imagine in a third world country it will totally be dysfunctional. But that, that's the point. So we need to constantly be calling the balls and strikes. Hey, Mr. President, this was awesome. Great job. Double down on this. And you know, I'm going to start off with a ball before we get to the strikes and go into uh, um, immigration. But one of the big things that w we have an article out this morning, our first one of the week, a really good ball I want to call from President Trump that you're not going to hear a lot in the media at all. But I think we need to focus on because it really – it has bearings on so many fundamentals of what is the purpose of the federal government, our foreign policy, our priorities, and ties back into the whole Russia collusion business that everyone's focused on. You know, for all the talk of Trump being weak on Putin and this just ridiculous notion that the Twitter bots and the Facebook ads that the Russians took out to somehow influence our election, that somehow that that's a strategic threat, when really, as we mentioned before, the strategic threat is their nuclear offensive capabilities that are completely, completely overshadowing our capabilities because of, of years of these one-sided treaties that we sign with them where we just destroy our all our nuclear warheads, launchers, from from all three elements of the of the nuclear triad, you know, 
know, whether it's air, land, or sea. And the Russians are just going pedal to the metal. And they, they're, they're violating this stuff openly, testing and developing new uh, weapons, ground launchers for uh, 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 surface-based nuclear weapons, all these super weapons that, that Putin's developing. You want to talk about a Russian collusion? Obama's new START treaty, unilateral disarmament, where we destroyed our hundreds of our nuclear warheads and launchers to get below the targets that that you, you need. You know, you can have more than fifteen hundred warheads and seven hundred um, launchers. And the Russians went and expanded their arsenal for a number of years, and then you know they had until February. 5th, I guess, February 5th of this year, 2018, to get rid of them. So, you know, we signed the treaty in 2012, 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17. As late as 2017, Congressional Research Service reported, as, as it was clear in Russian state media, that they actually grew their arsenal. So the irony is Russia was below the 1500 level at the beginning. They never had that many words. We, we were the ones who had it. It affected us which was stupid. It was a one-sided thing. Then the Russians grew their arsenal for those years. Suddenly, we're to believe that within a period of a few months, they got rid of all of them to comply. When built into the agreement, there was no verification system that could actually verify nuclear warheads. So, you know, this was the true Russian collusion. Like we said in our Foreign Policy Fridays the last couple of weeks with Jordan Shackdale, you always have to have a balance with foreign policy, not to get too involved in, oh, I'm too anti this country or pro this country. We have to be pro our interests and always drive down that center lane of our interests and understand what is and what is not a strategic threat. In some ways, I, like I always said, Russia in Syria is not a strategic threat. Even what they're doing in Crimea, I'm not going to go crazy over. But there are two things that we do need to counter them on, and we don't have to reinvent the wheel because we need to counter Iran, China, and North Korea in these very same theaters anyway, and that is the nuclear deterrent and Latin America, our own backyard. That's what we should care about. And as much as I will tell you I don't like some of the Trump associates with Russia. But again, it's no worse than the other administrations. I don't like what he did in Helsinki. He looked very weak. I'll be the first to tell you that, and I'm not going to defend that. But if you look at the actual policy outcomes, you know, I often say you look at the actual policy outcomes and you know the administration is not moving in the right direction on a given issue despite the rhetoric. Here, his outcomes have been better than his rhetoric. The Iran deal. I mean, that's that's Russia's biggest thing. We pulled out of it. We're fighting them on energy, exports, to make Europe less dependent on them. We're prodding NATO to get serious about Russia. So Trump has been much better on this. And then suddenly, and I, I'm still trying to figure out what exactly precipitated it, if this was just, you know, they always meant to do it, and finally they got the staff in place, the... Uh, you know, people at DOD and, and state. But Trump pulled out of the INF, the 1987 Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, that Russia has been openly violating since 2011. The Obama administration identified it, and they did nothing about it because they were the ones truly colluding with Russia. Trump is pulling out of it. Trump said, we're the ones that have stayed in the agreement. We, we've honored the agreement. Russia has not. Um, so we're going to terminate this agreement. We're going to pull out, Trump announced on Saturday. This, this, is, this is really good change. Um, and I think he deserves credit from it. And you know, I've criticized him more than almost anyone in an array of issues who, who's on the right because I don't seek to curry favor or get on Fox News. So I'm going to be the one to focus on good things that other people aren't focusing on. And, and this is really good news. So I have an article I did with – I did an interview with Mark Schneider. He worked in um, 
a number of administrations doing uh, nuclear agreements, uh, just an expert on this issue. We had him on, on our show. Again, if you want to Google Mark Schneider, Daniel Horowitz podcast, um, amazing podcast. He did it with us, amazing information. But you know, basically what's starting to happen, just to summarize what we spoke with about last time, the article we did, and the importance of this INF, is that you know, a lot of people, their eyes glaze over, well, what does it matter? You know, we all have enough nuclear weapons to destroy the world 10 times over. What, you know, what does it matter? But what, what matters is this, that Russia is def- developing a nuclear offensive and defensive capability with these super weapons, tactical nuclear weapons, as well as these mid-range, not just long-range, but mid-range nuclear forces that make an end run around mutually assured destruction. That they understand that okay, if if you know they lob um, strategic nukes at America, then we're gonna send them back. Okay, that that they understand. But what they're trying to do is start maybe with Europe, where, they, and, and they're very bold about this, this doctrine they have of first use of nuclear weapons, that they will immediately use tactical nukes, maybe with a mid-range, um, low-level impact. That it, you know, knowing politically what the the way America reacts, we're not going to trigger MAD based on that. But likewise, we don't have a commensurate and equal response that we could check that behavior. You could check MED with MED. You could check long range nukes and and um, strategic nukes. With like you know similar weapons and, and our arsenal is depleting on that too. But if they have these super weapons, the ability, just the the capabilities of of the the launching and the deployment and the impact. Keep in mind, in, in, in this sense of nuclear warfare, less is more. Less impact is more. It's more strategic. It's more tactical as well. We don't have answers to this stuff that they've developed. So that's the importance of this. The INF barred countries from producing or testing um, ground-launch cruise missiles that have a mid-range that's between 500 kilometers and 5,500 kilometers or to possess such missiles or the launchers. Russia has them. They've been developing them. They've been testing them. We destroyed in the 90s 2,700 of our ground-launch and intermediate-range missiles. Totally one-sided now. So I'm very proud of of Trump for pulling out of this. This is, again, another good decision from Bolton and and Pompeo. And and, and this is where we're we're making strides. Like I said, on a lot of foreign policy things, not all of them, but some areas where Trump wants to do better, he's stifled by these very idiots in the administration. And I I want you to keep in mind when a lot of you have heard, and I still don't know more than you guys do on this, but what was then what was reported in the press? But this uh, shouting match between Chief of Staff General Kelly and John Bolton. This stuff happens in the, in the administration every day, and Trump teeters between different forces: the swamp and the anti-swamp. Sometimes he's grounded against the swamp. Sometimes he's teetering. Sometimes he's bought into the swamp. Where he's good, we got to back him. Where he's wavering, we got to push him in the right direction and and strengthen the forces in the administration that are that are on us on our side. And where he's wrong, we got to take a sledgehammer to him. This is the movement we need, but this is the movement we're lacking. One that will call the balls on strike and strikes and focus on what we need to focus on, even if the media is not focusing on it. So th- th- this is very solid news, and and again. What would a movement do? A movement would say, right on, Mr. President. This is great. This is something that Bush and Obama did not do and should have done. This is real change. And really, it speaks to the whole Russian collusion thing. I mean, this is how to make an end run around the whole – how to jujitsu the whole Russia thing. Really? I'm weak on Russia? Hey, buddies, look who's weak on Russia. So a move, if we had a conservative movement, they'd say, right on, Mr. President, and here is the next step. The next step is to pull out of the New START Treaty. So right now, it's slated to expire on February 5th, 2021. And not surprisingly, at the Helsinki conference, Putin 
requested that it be extended for five years. I don't blame him because it's another one-sided treaty. Trump should demand that the Senate take up a resolution pulling out of New Start. Take that, Russia. You know, we're not going to be the only ones abiding by nuclear disarmament. And then the Democrats are now put into a position well, what are they going to do? Oh, hey, Trump is colluding with Putin to, uh, well, uh, oh, yeah. Look who's colluding with Putin. Look who's pro-Russia now, buddy. I mean, you want to talk about a perfect, you know, be, again, politics shouldn't be the most important thing. It's, it's policy. This is why we have a federal government. Not to get involved in the Afghanistan dumpster fire. Not to piss on the Saudis for going after Turkey and the Muslim Brotherhood and Qatar and Iran. Even if you think they went too far here. Not for taking over health care and agriculture. This is why we have a federal government. Because the nuclear threat in the long term from Russia, China, North Korea, and, 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 and eventually Iran is real. That is something that could affect us. Afghanistan can't do anything to us. The mud hut munchkins... Running, to, you know, dancing around a circle with AK-47, saying, "Allah Akbar." I mean, I mean, they, they could affect us only if we go there, and then affect our troops there, and then bring them in. Immigration, terror finance. We spoke about that last week. That's the way to do it. The right diplomacy, the right alliances. That will solve ninety percent of the problems. But there is one thing that even secure borders will not help you and that's you know nuclear offensive capabilities from adversaries and that is why we need to both develop our nuclear offensive and nuclear defense and this is where it ties back into domestic policy because when we're spending we're going to flush in, in, in within two years five six hundred billion a year just on interest on the debt we're spending so much on welfare and health care to, to put into the pockets of the insurance cartel and the, and the hospital cartel and all the other garbage we spend money on, then suddenly – and then even on, when it comes to defense spending, we put it all into these nation-building dumpster fires, not on a standing deterrent. That's what you need. You need – most of your defense funds should be stuff you'll never use because by having it, you'll never have to use it. But you need it. There's evil in this world, and only we have the divinely, you know, inspired and given gift of God from God the resources to to do this. But we're pissing away our resources, and suddenly we don't have money for this. This is what the federal government should be spending money on. Anything else, not anything else, but most other things, should be the states, the counties, and really the private sector with a lot of things that we spend money on. This is why we have a federal government. And that's why this was so important, what Trump did with the INF, but he needs to follow up on that with announcing he's pulling out a start and, and shaming Mitch McConnell into bringing this up. These are the plays down the field we should bring. And, and, and again, it's, it's solid politics. How will they have – what are they supposed to do the next day? Trump is colluding with Russia. Oh, really? But instead, we're talking about Khashoggi. We're defining our foreign policy and national security – by a Muslim Brotherhood guy that was that 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 is being protected by a country that themselves butcher journalists all the time. And and whatever you think of MBS, whether you think he's a strategic partner or you distrust him, he's certainly not as bad as, as Qatar and and uh, um, Iran Iran and, and Turkey. So there's no reason we should get get involved in this. Right, so um, this is really important, and, and hats off to the president. So this is a solid ball. Okay, this we're calling a ball. Um, now, 
where else are we? We got the caravan. Now, this we're going to call both a ball and a strike. Trump so far has been solid with his diplomacy. He got on Twitter today, and he said, I will cut off aid now to all these countries. It's worth seven, you know, about three, $400 million a year between El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. But now it looks like the caravan is now 10,000 strong, and they overran Mexico. And now they're traipsing through Mexico. Now, I don't have enough intel yet to tell you whether the Mexicans, you know, kind of let them in or whether they just didn't have the resources. I mean, keep in mind that, you know, very few other countries could stop something like this. So I, I, I don't know which one it is. Um, but either way, it shouldn't. So Trump has been good until now. But either way, it shouldn't matter. Because while the diplomacy is important here, there's only one thing that matters. It's like, man, how do we stop this? It's not rocket science. You stop it by stop self-immolating. Don't let it in. See, they're not beating us with weapons. They're beating us with lawfare. And here's my concern. So number one, this is a test for Trump. But as I said before, it's a test for him not just to stop the caravan. That should be a no-brainer. I mean, if President Trump cannot stop open invaders chanting anti-American slogans, acting violently, mainly young males – belligerently i mean this is an invasion force literally you know this is not even illegal immigration which should of course be stopped this is straight up an invasion force straight up done but trump needs to not just focus on this he needs to use this and it and it's you know very public presence is a way of shedding light on the broader stolen sovereignty. President Trump, in my view, needs to give a televised address because he recognizes that this is a winning issue. He could single-handedly turn the tide of this election on this issue alone. He should give a speech, and he should call upon Congress to come back in session, get your butts off the campaign trail for a couple days. You can afford to do that. And he should make a, a series of lists. I have, you could Google it, Daniel Horowitz, 25 no-brainer immigration ideas, 25 ideas to combat our stolen sovereignty. But he needs to give a general speech of what you're seeing marching through is just a glimpse of what's happening, where people are coming in, bringing in drugs and crime, MS-13. We have criminal aliens. They're fleecing our health care. They're fleecing our schools. They're fleecing our culture. They're stealing our franchise. They're being counted in the census. They drop kids here and they're counted as citizens. They're stealing our birthright. You want to talk about a winning issue? That's a winning issue. He's on the right track. But at the same time, he needs to also say in that same speech, while I need Congress to act in the long run, in the short term, as executive, this is my solemn duty to protect America, and I have the authority, and he should cite all the court cases that I've laid out yeah he has the authority to block any invasion and i will not be letting them in and not only that here's the key the key element here i don't i don't want the focus on the caravan to overshadow the fact that we have tens of thousands of others who slip in quietly not through a caravan and they're given asylum hearings they're caught and released and never heard from again until they show up as criminals and drugs in our in our communities. Meaning, if he uses this to shed light on the broader invasion, it would be worthwhile. But if it's only to stop this, now that in itself would be progress, because last time he downright let them in. He downright let them in. At least 150 of them. But what I'm trying to tell you is even if Trump successfully stops this and everyone's like, man, look, Trump's awesome and that's good, but I have a strike to call here. What I hear through my sources is that DHS under, I mean, really all the agencies, CBP and um, USCIS, which processes asylum claims, so the Border protection will be the ones that are meet them at the points of entry when they come in. 
but then they get processed through USCIS. I have it on good word that they are not following Attorney General Sessions' guidance that these people are not asylees. None of them are, and they should be turned back. That the immigration lawyers, and there are thousands of them, are working with the deep state uh, caseworkers at USCIS, and there's a lot of problems there, to let them in as if this were the Obama administration. This is where we need to get into Trump's face. And and n- not that I'm even blaming him, but like, hey, Mr. President, uh, you ought to have a, a conversation with the head of CBP and USCIS to stop this immediately. Why is this going on for even an, an, another day? Again, again, back to my analogy. The king lets you in the treasury and allows you to take what you want. A Democrat would never listen to us. A lot of other establishment Republicans wouldn't listen to us. Trump cares what conservatives think about him. We can make our demands. Because I could tell you, the establishment, the swamp, the deep state, they're already in the treasury. They don't need an invite. They always have the key to get in there. And they're taking out what they want. Are we going to go and call the balls and strikes and get our treasure from that treasury or are we going to dope up on political morphine and political heroin? Like, hey, all is awesome, Mr. President. And this is someone who just spent the first 25 minutes of the show praising him on what he did in Russia. But I'm just saying, this administration is continuing catch and release. Sessions' guidance on asylees is more important than any yelping about Central American aid, as much as I support him on that. You just don't let them in. But I'm just telling you, this is the time not just to talk about stopping the caravan, which of course you must do, but the images, I mean the fear to Americans. You want to talk about an invasion force. This could this nukes the Democrats. And, and he's he's good, he's getting there. And just another word on, on McConnell and Lindsey Graham. Where are they? Where are they? You know, I see there's there's a poll and it, and it's very telling. It shows the, the collapse of McConnell's approval among Republicans, thanks to the work many of us have done to expose the truth about him since 2010. And then this past year, he surged to record approval among Republicans. Because we're so caught up in this stupid judiciary fight, the wrong way to fix the judiciary, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. In a minute. We will get to that later. More insight on that. He's done nothing for us. Meaning, you can't have it both ways. You can't praise Trump and McConnell at the same time. If you're going to tell me he's doing the right thing and all the problems are Congress, then we need new leadership in Congress. McConnell needs to bring this stuff to the floor, period. All these ideas, E-Verify, formally clarifying asylum and UACs. Obviously, the border wall, more ICE agents, ending identity theft, ending welfare, ending education for them, ending the lower court involvement in immigration. And yes, he needs to finally force a talking filibuster. Because if he doesn't do that, this whole election, oh, we might gain two, three, maybe even four Senate seats. So what? You're still far away from 60. And if you're going to agree to this premise that Democrats with a simple 41 seats in the Senate could, could rule the roost, the elections won't matter. And this is part of what we talked about last week. The 800-pound gorilla in the room, the million-dollar question is what's next? What happens after the election even if you win? How will things change? Trump's got to do his part. He's got to threaten a veto. But we need to pressure him on that. McConnell's got to do his part by bringing legislation to the floor and also fighting in the budget bills. But we got to do our part and pressure them by calling them out and recruiting primary challengers. But instead, if we're going to be doped up on on like one or two things, well, you got Kavanaugh across. McConnell's the best leader ever. Gee, we're done. Do Democrats ever do this? Do they ever have this problem? 
What, what I am calling for is a conservative movement that does what the progressives do with the left. They back their members up when they do the right thing. Now, their members never do the wrong thing because they're always agreeable to what the progressives want to do. But you, whether the media is focusing on it or not, and the media is part and parcel of this movement, obviously, you better believe that the, the left, their grassroots, their media, their think tanks, their um, C4s and C3s, their pressure groups, they have their finger on the pulse of every strategic outcome, every issue, every nooker and cranny of every department, of every agency within the department. Hey, you're leaving stuff on the table. You could do more here. You're you're allowing, you know, conservative policies to remain on this. You know, I mean, that's what they would do. I can't do this alone. I'm just one person. More people need to be doing this. And and just know that there are good people in the administration, but but we don't do them any favors by doping up on morphine. Trump, awesome. McConnell, awesome. Great, great news. And, and just totally ignore the garbage going on from the deep state while we complain about the deep state in abstract. We need to focus on the actual policy outcomes. We gave you a good one. And we gave you one where it's mixed, where Trump is improving, but there's still a lot to be done. And USCIS is continuing this asylum garbage. Now, just a couple more uh, quick things on this border crisis before we move on to other issues. What is coming over with this? What is coming over? So, so it's bad enough if it would just be a bunch of disheveled, you know, impoverished belligerent people from the, the most violent countries on earth in the northern tri triangle of Central America, fleecing our economy, being in our communities, that would be bad enough. Obviously, you have the drug problem. Now, one, one of the things that I'm proudest about our work here in this year of 2018 is the series of articles we've done to expose the truth when it wasn't cool and no one realized that the drug crisis was not a prescription problem. Prescriptions had actually long plummeted the number of prescriptions being issued and certainly then the ensuing prescription deaths before the massive epidemic-level spike in overdoses starting a little bit 2013 and then really in earnest 2014, 2015, 2016. And I said that was all illicit drugs, both opioids and non-opioids, by the way, Cocaine and meth are the fastest growing problems, are not opioids. And the fact that it's that, that really a lot of this is the fentanyl being laced in, that it's you know over and beyond an addiction problem, it's a national security poisoning problem where it's the Mexican drug cartels that are just lacing in all this stuff. And the reason why it happened, and no one has an answer to this, why did it suddenly happen right then? You know, we've had painkillers for 20, 30 years, and you know, you won't all of a sudden have within a year where just it spikes 500%. People just all of a sudden switch to heroin. No, it's because, you know, we had the same cultural problem we always had. It wasn't the people on painkillers mainly. Um, it's the people that we have a cultural problem. And if you make a supply available so cheap and so abundant, they're going to use it. And the reason why you had so many fatalities is because more than ever it was laced with this fentanyl. And no one wanted to report on it, and all the state governments and the federal government has pursued policies assuming this is a prescription drug problem while ignoring the problem of the UAC Central Americans and the sanctuary cities. There's two sentences in an L.A. Times article I will link to, a new L.A. Times article – that's the money quote. Finally, they admit it. Everything I've been saying. Quote, Chinese companies send fentanyl in small quantities to dealers in the United States or Canada, but ship the drugs in bulk to criminal cartels in Mexico. The cartels then mix the synthetics into heroin and other substances or press them into counterfeit pills. The product is then smuggled across the border. Okay, there you have it, folks. This is not a doctor or healthcare problem. This is a border sovereignty, national security, immigration, drug cartel, sanctuary city problem. You know, in all these hearings, I would watch them. You know, imagine, you know, like, 
It says in Psalms, you know, the wicked will always walk in darkness. They just can't see the light. Well, you know, where does it come from? I don't know. It comes from China. Well, uh, okay, well, it comes from China, but is it who who is it shipped to? Meaning it's not a it's not a public policy problem. If someone wants to go online and buy on these in the on the dark web from China a pack of fentanyl and consume it, you, that, that's not a public policy problem. The same way it's not a public policy problem if so, if a bunch of people want to get together and purchase Drano and drink it. Okay, I mean there's there's nothing we can do about that. And it's not I mean that that's not the problem. <clears throat> Yet, the Senate Government Reform and Homeland Security Committee, headed by Ron Johnson, they put out this whole report on the dark web and China, and they never mentioned the fact that you, know, you would read it and you'd think, well, people are buying it, and you're like, you know, wow, you, you could get this deadly stuff on the web. Okay, well, you, you know, you could get a lot of deadly stuff anytime. The issue is, who is it being sent to? It's being sent to the Mexican drug cartels that shouldn't be in this country and shouldn't be harbored by sanctuary cities, and they're lacing it in other stuff. And that's the problem now. So, you know, you could have a family that, you know, you get a 20 year old kid, 18 year old kid, gets in with the wrong crowd. In the past, they'll come back, all are, um, you know, it's devastating, man. He took some heroin, whatever, but you can get him out of it. Now he comes back in a body bag. I've had a lot of this in my own community. And at first when it started happening, I didn't even realize. I thought, oh, I'm like they committed suicide. But that's not what it is. 90% of the time, they're not shooting up knowing they're going to die. I mean, it's certainly not good putting that stuff in, you know, you know, many of us would consider that self-immolating, obviously. But in their mind, they don't think they're going to die. It's laced with stuff. And this is happening even to marijuana. This is with the synthetic marijuana, the K2 and spice and these Yemeni-owned bodegas where these Yemeni that, – that's more Yemeni criminal cartel issue taking the compounds from China that are filled with rat poison and mixing it in. And then they hemorrhage out and die. So anyway, you have the LA Times admitting this is what's coming at. And, and the president broadly is speaking this, but he needs to give a national televised address. I would argue he should demand that Paul Ryan invite him. And he should give an address just on this. Then there's the Middle Easterners coming over. I'm very proud that Trump added in one of his tweets, and there are Middle Easterners mixed in. Clearly, he's getting briefings on this. I have heard that if you look at the path that the caravan is taking to southwest Mexico in the corner, almost near the Pacific coast, that is a known SIA, Special Interest Alien, a.k.a. Middle Eastern Passage. We have record high activity of Middle Easterners being smuggled in. Obviously, you had President Jimmy Morales of, of Guatemala saying that he deported 100 terrorists there. So there, there's, there's a major problem that that's obviously the transit to come to America. you got to come to Guatemala. But they also do have a problem – not as big as some of the other countries, but you know it doesn't take much to create a problem um, among their indigenous population getting converted to Islam. So again, depending on the country and the region, you have some some countries you have an Arab diaspora, mainly Lebanese or Syrian, very much Shiite, and that's why Hezbollah has the strongest presence. But other places, it's they're they're working on the indigenous population, and this is the problem with that area because this is the Chiapas, the southern district of Mexico, where you have this indigenous population that's convert. A lot of them have converted to Islam, and the Guatemalan government, which is now pretty good, although you know it's there's a lot of different. <laughs> they have their own deep state problem. They're concerned about. The Guatemalan side of the border, it's the same indigenous population. Keep in mind the uh, country lines were drawn arbitrarily. This is historically the same – I forget which Indian population that is, but it's the same population on both sides of the border. So they're concerned that their population is going to fall to Islam, and you already have that there. So Trump is absolutely right to call this out, and I think he should give a public address. Keep in mind we've had almost a 1,000 
Syrians and Bangladeshis cross at the Laredo sector. And by the way, you look at the border crossings, the the statistics, they break down apprehensions by – and I'm trying to get the latest data. They still haven't put out the September data so we could tally the full, the full uh, fiscal year 2018. But um, the full data here, 88% of those apprehended at Laredo were male. That should be a red flag, folks. <clears throat> That's more than, you, when, than what's happening to Europe, which is like 78% male. Now, the other sectors are less, but it's still overwhelmingly male, which even without the Middle Easterners should concern you because – you know, a p- pack of males from the most violent Central American countries, that's a problem in and of itself. But what I'm telling you is there is a Middle Eastern problem. It's nowhere near, you know, a plurality of people, but it's they are mixed in, and that is a problem. Trump's not making that up. You know, we've been talking about that for, for a long time. So, um, you know... This is something that Trump could run with. But again, let me let me ask you a question. <clears throat> Why is Trump practically the only one talking about this? Where's the leadership from McConnell and Lindsey Graham and John Cornyn and Paul Ryan? Oh, and Kevin McCarthy, who wants to be the next speaker. And this is another area where we need to call a strike on Trump. Why is Trump not supporting Jim Jordan and actually – Seems to indicate he's going to support Kevin McCarthy. You can't have it both ways, complain that Trump is being undermined by Congress and he would do better with a better congressional leadership, and then have Trump support the very current leadership and undermine the one man who actually finally put his hat in the ring to run against him, Jim Jordan, and we don't call Trump out for that and and right the ship. This is what we need a movement for. This is what no one else is doing, but this is what we're going to do here. Um... It's it's wild. It's wild. You know, and and I'm just looking right now, the problem that Trump has with his approval rating and by extension Republicans, with college educated women. Now that's a loaded term. There's a lot of college educated women. Um, there are single ones. There's married with kids. You know, obviously the single ones. You know, we're not, we're never going to get them. But you know we're leaving a lot of people on the table, suburban mothers that care about a safety and security agenda. Trump, Trump's on the right message, but we need to get the other Republicans on message, and we need to get Trump doing the right things in primary challenges and leadership fights to get everyone on, on the same page. And then finally, there's the crime issue where Trump talks tough on crime, but then the only thing he wants to do – is to let go of the top drug traffickers in federal prison, which a lot of them are foreign nationals. This jailbreak agenda. Another opportunity where we need a movement calling a strike. No, Mr. President, you ran on the opposite. Don't get sucked in by Jared. Don't get sucked in by the deep state. Don't get sucked in by the Koch brothers, all, all of which you complain about. Well, I guess maybe he doesn't complain about his son, at least not son-in-law, at least not publicly. But this is where we're lacking a movement. It's really frustrating. So um, there's that going on. Like I said, McConnell's approval rating. McConnell's approval rating, that's a problem. How is someone like me supposed to work on helping someone, recruit someone to challenge John Cornyn, Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell, all of which are up for re-election next cycle. Nothing will change if they're in power. Nothing will change. I, I, I ask you guys this. Here's an assignment I have for all of you. And email me at dharowitz.crtv.com with your results. Here's an assignment I have for you. Take two pieces of paper or, you know, obviously on, on a Word document. And on one... Jot down, let's say there's a panoply of issues, spending, taxes, life, marriage, religious liberty, terrorism, um, 
obviously immigration, healthcare, education. Name me how many Democrats dissent in any meaningful way from their party on any one of those issues, from the liberal position on any one of those issues. I will tell you, I cannot think of a single member and a single issue, but there might be. But you get the point. Now, on the other document, how many Republicans dissent from the conservative position, which is supposedly the Republican Party platform, on any number of those issues? And you'll find it's most of them on most issues. In fact, you'll have a shorter piece of paper if you list <laughs> the number of Republicans and the number of issues that they adhere to the conservative philosophy. I don't want to hear just because they spoke tough on one issue in our favor, I can't primary Lindsey Graham. Really? Look at the Democrat roster and you'll see what a party needs to be. We'll never get anywhere if at, at the perfect moment when we finally have an opportunity to change leadership – whether it's with Kevin McCarthy at a leadership level or whether it's at an individual level, to elect them, we fall for their, their ruse every time. Oh, well, now they've changed. No, they haven't. No, they haven't. We could hold them accountable. This is what I say all the time. The one purpose to voting Republican is to actually, because if they're in charge, we could pressure them, whereas we can't pressure Democrats. But if we don't pressure Republicans, then, yeah, there's no purpose in voting for them because they're not going to do the right thing. Call the balls and strikes. Where the heck are my colleagues in this business? And, and you know what's amazing? The one thing that has unified all Republicans and all people on the center right is the violence from the left. And clearly it's hurt them with voters. And we focus on reacting to the violence while, meanwhile, we're getting screwed on our policy issues. And what I tell people is if you actually focused on policy and we had a Republican Party coming back into session, reforming the filibuster, which doesn't even – I mean if you apply current rules and force them into talking filibusters, you could really eventually pass things with 51 votes, pass our budget, make our spending cuts, pass our immigration priorities, pass our health care priorities – do you know how much – you could have your cake and eat it too. You get your policies and then commensurate with the amount of victories you get, the left gets even more violent, and they fall out of favor even more with the voters. You have your cake and eat it too. This is what we need to do. We are our best advocates. We are our only advocates. No one's going to advocate for us. All my colleagues complain about the deep state and the media. Exactly. So if you don't make the plays, the plays by default will be made by, by everyone else. Trump relishes in fighting the media, but sometimes he gets taken in by them. And if they give him good press on doing a liberal thing or two, he might do it. And that's what you're seeing certainly on the criminal justice deform. But I want to touch on a couple of other loose issues here just uh, to tie up some loose ends I didn't mention before. So first off, I just wanted to follow up with our Friday show about Afghanistan. We had that attack um, in eastern Afghanistan where the commander, right, General Scott Miller, was almost killed in this insider attack. Uh, he was there when this regional police chief, General Abdul Razik, and his intelligence chief were, were killed. And... I just want to tell you that the government lied to us. They said, oh, no, the Americans weren't, weren't killed, weren't, weren't, weren't hurt in the attack. It was just the Afghanis. It turns out that U.S. Army Brigadier General Jeffrey Smiley was shot in that attack. Um, I'm not clear what his condition is. I mean, he clearly is going to survive. I don't know how bad if he was shot in the arm or whatever, but that, that's a big deal. That's a very big deal. I mean, when you have a brigadier general almost killed, I mean, we had the commanding general of all of Afghanistan almost killed, but he was actually shot, this guy. They lied to us. I didn't know that on Friday. It wasn't reported on Friday. 
So again, this is just another example of where Trump is actually with us. He thinks the whole thing is stupid. He wants to pull out. But we don't have a movement building the case. And again, most liberals, for their reasons, would support us on this. Big opportunity lost here. Finally, I want to get back to the courts before we close up today. Talk about calling the balls and strikes. We need a conservative movement that's going to call the balls and strikes on policy, really by everyone, but certainly Republicans that we could influence, Republican president, Republican Congress. But what we don't have and didn't adopt in this government, but people think we do, is a judiciary that supposedly calls the balls and strikes on the other branches of government. You know, last week I quoted from Chief Justice Roberts in a speech at the University of the Minnesota Law School saying that, you know, we speak for the Constitution and our job is to keep the other branches in line. I want to give you, present to you a speech by Neil Gorsuch that I believe is just as problematic. And with all due respect, he's, he's look, he, he's a nice guy, he's a good guy. He'll be with us most of the time, but I just want you to understand that almost all of them, including the Federalist Society, conservative whatevers, view the judiciary as supreme to the other two branches, and that is a very big problem. And think of the irony. This is the one issue that Republicans think that their party is doing so good for them on, and in reality, they're perpetuating and exacerbating this myth of judicial supremacy that even with so-called better justices, it's not fundamentally going to change it. And, you know, I'm going to keep saying this until uh, <laughs> until I'm blue in the face because, you know, not enough people are getting this message. I mean, some of you guys might be sick of me saying this already. But um, anyway, uh, Gorsuch so, – so this is an article from John Levitin at SCOTUS blog, right, the, the uh, definitive website for Supreme Court news. Um, on Wednesday night, the Supreme Court – Historical Society hosted a lecture by Professor Matthew Waxman on Charles Evans Hughes' evolving thoughts on the flexibility of constitutional restrictions on governments during wartime and peacetime. And, you know, Neil Gorsuch was the one who, who gave the keynote address. And he, he gives a whole whole write-up here. And I just want to just cut in. I'm, I'm losing my train of thought because I forgot something. The irony here is they're celebrating Charles Evans Hughes. He was a Supreme Court justice, you know, at the turn of the 20th century. Evans Hughes was actually a guy, I write about him in my book. He said in a speech in 1907 that, quote, we are under a constitution, but the constitution is what the judges say it is. And you know, really, we haven't evolved from that. I mean, most of these judges believe the same thing. And so, um, again, I'm reading from the article again. General, generally, the justices speak briefly. They usually thank the society for hosting the lecture, praise the speaker for her work, and perhaps crack a memorable joke. But Gorsuch used his time to deliver an impassioned defense of the judiciary and civility while criticizing the American public's ignorance of the structure of our government. Um, Gorsuch said that he has been astonished to learn that a lot of people in America just don't understand the role of an independent judge. They don't know the differences between judges and politicians. They assume judges make campaign promises and should deliver, and that judges are just politicians in robes. So that sounds all good, but ironically, you'll, you're going to see Gorsuch himself, with all due respect, is the one who doesn't understand the role of the judiciary. Gorsuch spoke passionately, passionately about the benefits and importance of an independent judiciary. He said, as difficult as our times sometimes seem, we are very blessed. How many places in the world can you go where you can rest assured that you have an independent judge decide your case? Gorsuch singled out North Korea for having an expansive Bill of Rights that promises its citizens a right to free education, free medical care, and relaxation. He joked that he would enjoy a right to relaxation, but he argued that those North Korean rights are, quote, not worth the parchment they've written on, because you don't have judges to enforce them. Dude, dude. So, you know, most people are like, hey, wow, that's, that's a great point. And I'm like jumping out of my chair like, dude, you're worse than the ignorant public you're talking about, with all due respect to Justice Gorsuch. Really. Think about it. Of all the factors of what distinguishes America from North Korea, the first thing that comes to mind is an independent judiciary. What? It's 
We have elections, like real elections, bicameralism in the legislature, a separate executive from a legislature. We have federalism. We have 50 states. We have a civil society that we all kind of guard this stuff. Yes, the judiciary is one, one piece of the puzzle. It's not the crowning piece of the puzzle, the overarching independent. And the irony, he doesn't realize what's lost on him. He's the one, if anything, with that rationale that's bringing us a step closer to North Korea, where you have an unelected group of people that could just exactly create a right to relaxation, a right to education, a right to free health care. That's exactly what the courts are doing. That's what happens when you give it over, you know, like Charles Evans Hughes said. We speak for the Constitution. John Roberts said that. That's not true. You have the right to interpret the Constitution for an individual case that's legitimately before the court with the proper standing. But you actually do not have the power to enforce. I don't know what he means that judges, you know, because you don't have judges to enforce them. Judges don't enforce anything. It's the executive branch that enforces it. They render opinions. Now, look, if, if we have, you know, if the government is forcing me to do something I shouldn't be forced to do pursuant to the Constitution, one of the avenues I have, in addition to petitioning my, con my congressman to speaking out in the media, is I could go to a judge. And I'm all for that. But the problem that they don't realize is, and, it, and it, the irony is lost on them, it sounds very nice to say you have – Oh, judges are going to safeguard the rights. But who safeguards us against the judges? Which is why you have three equal branches. You all push back against each other. Because the same way a judge, in his mind, is the sole enforcer of real rights, well, what if judges then create BS rights, like a right to relaxation or a right to dignity to someone else's private property that violates his conscience? Law of the land, baby. So it just – I mean I just jumped out of my seat when I saw this because it's lost on, on Gorsuch. And, and, and this is the thing. you know, People think we're winning back the courts. You know what's funny? Later this week, the Senate Judiciary Committee is going to meet, even though they're on recess, you know, taking my advice a little bit, not as much as I wanted, to confirm a judge. And a lot of people be like, man, look how aggressive Grassley is. Look, these guys are confronting judges left and right. And what I tell you is I said, look at the circuits and look at which judges they're filling. This is on the fourth circuit. The fourth circuit is lost. Everyone agrees that. Obama appointed most of them, and they're all young now. There's like an 11 to 3 liberal majority on that court. And then it got even worse. A conservative justice retired. One of the few we had. So this seat is filling a conservative seat on a court where the balance is gone for a generation or two. So you can't just play this bean counting. But nonetheless, it looks like we're expending so much political capital to get the judiciary. But ironically, we're not getting it. And this is a perfect illustration of it. So then once these terrible rulings come down, well, the Democrats could turn to us and say, you guys moved heaven and earth to pack the courts. You did everything you can. You have no reason to complain. After all, the courts are rule us, which is why the strategy should be fighting judicial supremacism, not which guy is going to run the judicial supremacism. And it's very disappointing that all the justices – you know, this independent judiciary thing is kind of like separation of church and state. You know what I mean? It's this meme that people think is almost written into the Constitution, and there's a kernel of truth to it when applied properly, but it's totally blown up to something that's not what it was meant to be, and it's not even in the Constitution. All independent judiciary means is simply saying that the legislature cannot adjudicate the cases under the laws they pass. It must be independent in the sense that Congress must outsource that adjudication to, a, to some judicial body, but they have the full say over the structure of that, as we talk about many times. And then at the back end, even when once the courts already render a ruling, that that will be regarded as law binding on everyone beyond the judicial branch. No, that's just not true. 
very disappointing, the um, judicial supremacy. But, yeah, I mean, I just, just wanted to give you guys that that heads up on it. Really, really irked me. But, um, anyway, we're, we're just about out of time here. And I just want to tell you guys, why is it that almost nobody else calls the balls and strikes on their own party? Well, because they're bought out. Everyone's got to eat in this business. I'm blessed to have independent, talk about independent judiciary. We need an independent, conservative, political judiciary to call the balls and strikes. And I have independent advertisers that share my values. And therefore, I'm not on a leash as to what I could say and what I can't say. Oh, you can't touch him. You can't touch that. And one of them is HR software named Bamboo HR. Bamboo HR is PC Magazine's top pick for HR software, as well as the most conservative HR software for small, medium businesses in America. I know many of you, particularly in my audience here, are small business owners. You suffer from the Obamacare mandates, all the paperwork you have to deal with, all the regulations. The last thing you need is all the chaos from the paperwork dealing with personnel rather than dealing with what you do best, which is your product and service. That's where Bamboo HR can help. Bamboo HR manages all your employee data, automates the countless tasks you have to deal with. They do everything for, for you from onboarding paperwork, personnel reports, um, even tracking time off and overtime based on all the state laws. And I am telling you, once... You have them very easy interface, very easy to transition to. You could focus on what you love to do. You could put down all those hats you have to wear and focus on actually doing the business. So here's what I need you guys to do. Bamboo HR is giving our listeners a special extended free trial. That's right. Instead of your standard 70 trial, you get to try out Bamboo HR for a full 14 days. But the only way to get this special offer is go to bambooHR.com slash Daniel. For this exclusive extended free trial, go to bambooHR.com forward slash Daniel. Again, limited time only to our listeners. 14 days that you get to try it out. See if this is something that works for you. I think it will. bambooHR.com slash Daniel. The most conservative and effective HR software in the business. Thank you all for listening. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 